0: kind of the stories. You've probably heard it a lot in my sermon illustrations, movie quotes, and book quotes. I just love a good story. And Exodus is that. I mean, just think, you have a, a, an oppressed people in slavery, and, and a baby is born and under very unusual circumstances is secreted away out of danger and, and, and grows up in the house of the oppressors in their palace. Before spending time out in the wilderness and then being called back by God to, to rescue his people through these miraculous acts. Uh, the Red Sea parted. And, and imagine a slave nation escapes from the dominant world power of the day without ever having to lift a finger. And God provides for them. And they're on their way to the promised land. The, the land of blessing. The, the, so to speak, the happily ever after, except like all good stories, there's always a twist, and this twist is not like all good twists, what you might expect. And the twist is this: the greatest obstacle to God being able to rescue His people and bring them home is not the Egyptians. It's not the Red Sea. It's not the Amalekites who attack them along the way. It's not the wilderness with its lack of food and water. No, the greatest obstacle to God saving his people and bringing them home is his people. The very ones that are his beloved are also his enemy. And there's tension. How can God love his people when his people also position themselves as his enemy. And that's what we're going to explore in kind of three scenes this morning in this story. And as God would later tell Moses in Exodus, I am the Lord who forgives sin but I will not clear the guilty. And that's the tension we're going to wrestle with this morning from God's word. So let's pray and ask God to speak this morning. Father, thank you so much for just this opportunity to gather, to hear from you. Father, I pray that even those words we sing, that we are weak and frail, that whether we feel those words right now or not, you would help us to know our need for you, our dependence on you. That we would just lean in with hearts open and ears that wanna hear. Father, would you help me to, to recognize my own need for you to be at work through me that it can't just be my words. So, Father, speak in your kindness to us. Pray this in your name. Amen. Well, the last couple of weeks we've been looking at the tabernacle and instructions to build it and how God gifts people. But the narrative right before that was that Moses had gathered the people and they'd had this, this covenant ceremony, the ceremony celebrating their relationship and kind of a binding agreement. And the people had said, We're yours, God. We'll obey all that you've commanded. And Moses and the leaders go up on God's holy mountain to, to celebrate and eat a meal. And Moses gets to go all the way up into the cloud of glory to, to meet with God. And the, the narrative ended at the end of chapter 24 with, and Moses was there 30 days and 30 nights. And really chapter 32 actually kind of picks up the narrative after this excursus on how to build the tabernacle. So listen as I read these words from chapter 32. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is kind of an abrupt transition. They just had a high point, Israel. And now Moses gone for merely 40 days and 40 nights. And they break the first commandment that God gave them. Don't have any other gods. And even if they thought they were just making an image of the true God, that still breaks the second commandment, which God says, don't make any images of me. How did they get here seemingly so quickly, right? Well, we're told in verse 1, the reason when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. They, They had this... Delay. They they were stuck waiting and they had a hard time waiting. They had a hard time waiting and trusting when they couldn't see. The God they worshiped, they couldn't see. But at least they had the leader Moses they could go see and talk to, and he's been gone forty days and forty nights. And suddenly waiting, trusting, without seeing. In the wilderness is really, really hard. And so they take matters into their own hands. Instead of a God they can't see, they say to Aaron, make us a God we can see. Build us something. We can see it. We we can touch it. That's easier for us to understand. And instead of waiting, make us a God who shall go before us. We're tired of waiting. Make us a God who will lead us the next step on the journey. We've got to keep going. And so they pick this, this symbol, a, a golden calf. It's but maybe better translated, a young bull in the prime of its life as a symbol of strength and power. That's what we want. Instead of a God we can't see, a God we can see. Instead of a God we wait on, a God who will lead us now. Because God's ways are hard. But you have to ask, like, well, wasn't Aaron left in charge by Moses precisely to stop this kind of thing from happening, right? Like, what happens? Well, later in the passage, in verse 21, we read that Moses, after coming down the mountain, says to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Yeah, it is humorous, right? In a story that's like abysmally terrible, you almost have to laugh. Like, some Aaron's like, well, you know the people. It was peer pressure, Moses. It was peer pressure. And besides... I just threw the gold in and out came the calf. I don't know what happened. It's like, wow, man, my doggie and my homework is so lame compared to this, right? Like, this is the original excuse, right? Like, Aaron, what are you doing? And, and maybe he tries to salvage it a little bit. Because in verse 5, we read that when Aaron saw the, finally the golden calf that he had made— he built an altar before it and he made a proclamation saying, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. You can see him almost saying like, I know we're kind of going way off course, but let's pretend we're still on course. We'll, we'll make a feast to the Lord and, and we'll offer burnt offerings and, and peace offerings, just like Moses did before. We'll pretend we're still really worshiping the true way, the true God, even though we've totally gone off course. Do you see what's happening? They choose to to make God in their own image on their own terms, trying to justify it, and it leads to their own way of living, which as we keep reading, we read that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, and and that's a that's a word that more means either kind of a drunken, out of control revelry or possibly sexual activity, which is very common in the religions of that day as part of their worshiping. And you can see that the people have broken out of control. They chose to worship their own God and now they're living their own way. And it's destructive. It's destructive. Why? Why would they get here? Even if you say, okay, they had to wait 40 days, how did they actually get here? Why did the waiting drive them to this? Well, I think the answer is actually back in verse one. When the people gathered to Aaron, they say to him, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, pause. Who brought them out of the land of Egypt? On one hand, you could say Moses. He was God's chosen leader. But when they crossed the Red Sea and sang worship songs, they weren't praising Moses. They're praising the Lord. Like, you're the one who led us. You're the one that part of the Red Sea, Lord. We're worshiping you. And now in the waiting, it's like they forgot. They forgot who really was their savior, who really had delivered them, who really was leading them. And they thought it was just Moses and he's gone. Psalm 106 actually confirms this. We read that they made a calf in Horeb, says the psalmist, and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. They forgot. They forgot God. Because waiting without sight is hard, right? Waiting without knowing how long is hard. Ever ever see a kid that's like waiting to eat lunch and lunch is still being prepared and they're like wiggling on their seats, right? And like they're like shoving their sibling. Like they can't sit still, right? Or you notice adults waiting for a bus? You're either like scrolling on your smartphone or you're like pacing back and forth. Like there's, it's so hard to just sit still and wait and trust. It's hard. It's easier to want to just run off and, and do something on our own. It's, it's hard to trust the unseen, so it's, it's hard to trust when God's ways are slower. And so it's easier to just say something else will promise me what I want now. And so let's run after that. And that's how idols work. They say, you give us something and we'll give you what you want back. So the Israelites brought their gold earrings and got a golden calf they could see and touch. But they ultimately never fully deliver. See, God might be unseen, but his works are not. These 40 days while Moses is gone and like, what's going on? They're eating manna every day that God has provided for them to eat in the wilderness. They had only to look back west over the distant horizon and remember slavery in Egypt, to remember all that God had done for them because he had done so much. All these miracles to save them from slavery. He saved their firstborn by providing lambs for them to kill instead. He he brought them through the Red Sea. He protected them from the Amalekites who fought them. He gave them water in the wilderness. And after all of this, they turn away. It's like a a man who finds a a woman that he chooses to love. And she's not maybe the prettiest or the smartest or the most talented. That's what God says about Israel. But he chooses to love her and pursue her. And he he goes out and gets a job and buys that engagement ring and and provides for her. And they go on this honeymoon and it's this this wonderful time. And one day he goes out for a walk just to reflect prayerfully on how good this journey has been. And he comes back to the hotel to find her with another man. How would he feel? How do you think God feels when his people have done the same thing to him here? And that leads us to our next scene. So listen again as I continue reading the story. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? He uses language in verses 7 through 9 of, of that they've corrupted themselves. They've turned quickly aside. They're, they're a stiff-necked people. Stubborn but in the wrong. I, I've done so much for them and they are unfaithful. They have cheated on me. And so he starts to use the language of divorce. Notice what he says in verse 7. Go down, Moses, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of egypt over and over again in scripture he's always said my people my treasured possession the ones i've called the ones i've redeemed and here he says your people moses it's like a divorced spouse saying to their kids go talk to your father go talk to your mother they're not connected to me they're yours Do you feel the weight of this language? And so God says in verse 10, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I consume them. This is what I told them. I told them in the second commandment. I said, if you make other images, whether of things on the earth or above or beneath the earth, be warned because I am a jealous God. Jealous in the best sense of the word. You're mine. You promised to be mine. I promised to be yours. And now you've gone astray and there are going to be consequences. This is what's going to happen. Do you feel surprised at the strength of God's emotions here? They're weighty, aren't they? This is weighty words. And I have wondered as I was reading this, like, do we, do I have a category for a God with such strong emotions? After all, we're made in his image. He made us with emotions. He is emotions. But emotions are not to be out of control, out of line with the situation, and they're not here God is angry, and it is justified. One scholar, Peter Ends, I think puts it really helpfully. He says this. This is not only a story of the people's rebellion against God, but of their rejection of something God has been planning and working out since the time of Abraham. It is a rejection of God himself. That is why God is extremely angry with his people, and understandably so. It is not an arbitrary anger. God is not lashing out. God's intense anger, even against his own people, indicates not how angry this powerful God can become with these puny humans, but how severe a sin Israel's act is. See, God will always, always be consistently angry at sin. For it destroys and it dishonors. It breaks down things that God wants to build up. So God will always be angry at sin. And so here, if you didn't know the rest of the Bible, there comes the point of the story where it's like this is the closest Israel comes to being wiped out in judgment by God, right here. It's the lowest point. And then, in steps, God's chosen mediator, Moses. Moses. He steps in as the go-between as God had appointed him for God and the people. And he says three things to God. He says in verse eleven, "O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? God, remember, they're your people. They're not mine. They're yours. You're the one that saved them. And then he says in verse 12, he says, Look, God, I'm looking for your glory. Why should the Egyptians... You told Pharaoh, I'm going to raise you up and I'm going to take you down and rescue my people to show you that I am the great God. Why should the Egyptians now say, well, he just wanted to pull them out with evil intents to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Say, God, I want you to be honored and glorified in this situation. He doesn't make his defense on the people. He doesn't say, God, you know, it has been 40 days. Give him a little slack. It's hard to wait. You know, just kind of don't worry about it. He doesn't say, God, it's just a golden cow. We can just tear it down when we get back and everything can go back to normal. Let's fine." He doesn't do that. Moses knows the people have no hope to argue their own case. The only hope is that to save them is what brings God the most glory. And so he pleads that. And then third, he says in verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. You made a promise you'll multiply their offspring as the stars of heaven and you'd give them this land. Remember God your promise. You promised to do this regardless of what they did. You would come through. I think of uh, my wife Heather and I when we did our wedding vows, we kind of added in a line that's not part of the normal vows. We each vowed to each other these words, something along these words. um, I promise to be faithful to you regardless of your faithfulness to me. And so if something were to happen one day, Lord willing, never will, or say, Heather walked out on me, it would be right for me to be angry. But her brothers and my friends who are groomsmen could come to me and say, we get why you're angry. This is wrong. But you made a promise, Michael. You promised you would love her anyways. So that's how you're called to act. And that's what happens here with God. Verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster he was going to bring on his people. See, some people want to look at this and say, well, see, God, you can't trust him. He's always changing his mind, but that's not what's happening here. What's happening is this. God is always unchangeably angry at sin, and God is always unchangeably faithful to his promises. And there's a tension here. He will never change in his character, but we are not static in our relationship with him. We change. The situation changes. And so his faithful character changes his actions as things change on the ground. So what happened was God's mediator spoke. Moses spoke to God. But why was Moses there? Wasn't it because God had appointed him as the mediator? Wasn't it because God had sovereignly said, Moses, I'm gonna pick you. I'm gonna call you up on the mountain. Just as I prepared the tabernacle To cover the gap, so I've called you to be the man in the breach. The man in the gap. Precisely so that I could be faithful to keep my promises to forgive and judge. The tension bridged by this man in the gap. And Psalm 106 again says this. Therefore, he, that is God, said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Now, this, is, this is hard stuff to wrestle with as I was preparing this because we are talking about an, an eternal God who knows all things from beginning to end, who plans all things from beginning to end, interacting in space-time history with us, being described through human language. This is hard to make it all fit together. But I hope what you see so clearly here is God had appointed Moses precisely for a time like this to stand in the gap so that God could choose to forgive, could relent from being disaster, that his heart is one, even in the midst of his people's disobedience of love towards them. In fact, when God's people about a thousand years later or so came back from exile and were singing a song of worship during the days of Nehemiah, they sang these words, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. That's our God, still the same God today. He loves to forgive and not forsake. He loves to extend grace instead of judge. And it would be nice if the story ended right here at verse 14, right? The people sin, God forgives, awesome, go home, great happy feelings, no tension. That's not where the story ends. There's still verses 15 to the end of the chapter. And this is where we have to wrestle with the fact that God wants to forgive and chooses to, but He won't sweep injustice under the rug because that's not loving. We get that as a culture. To ignore injustice is not loving and kind, it must be dealt with. And so God does. So in verse 15, we read that Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. You have Moses coming down the mountain here, and he's, he's got the tablets with God's law and this, this covenant agreement written on it, almost like marriage vows and marriage certificate all in one. And this should have been a point of celebration, a, a high point. And it said he comes down the mountain and sees what they've done. And because he shares God's heart, he is angry at sin too. And he's not throwing a fit and just smashing them because he's, he's angry and throwing a pity party. No, Moses, God's prophet, is doing a symbolic act. You can almost see him grabbing these tablets and holding them up and saying, Israel, this is your covenant with God. And this is what you did with it. Smash. It's not going to end well. And so Moses, full of God's... Desire for wholeness takes action. And so in verse 20, he, he takes the calf that they had made and he burns it with fire and grounds it to powder and scatters it on the water and made the people of Israel drink of it. He, he totally, utterly annihilates this thing, right? It will, not even a trace of it will be left. And he scatters it on the water source that they were probably drinking from. So over the next days as they'd be drinking that water, they would be drinking bits of that in almost like they're getting literally a taste of their own medicine. But it's not just the the idol that needs to be removed, but all the false worshipers have to be removed too. And so Moses says this in verse 25, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. Those are weighty words. And I think in our, our context here today, it feels harsh, right? Why did they have to die? Well, I think it's important to remember what's actually going on here. The people who had been made by God, rescued by him, they had heard the entire law read out to them in Exodus 24, and they said, sign us up, we'll obey it all knowing the consequence for disobedience is death. The real surprise, friends, should not be that 3,000 died as if there were so many, but the real surprise is that so few died. All of them deserve judgment. Only 3,000 of them experienced it that day. That's God's mercy not bringing the full weight of judgment down. And it's also helpful to see, remember, that Moses called out to the people, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me, run away from this idolatry and come back. There's a chance to change sides before the judgment falls. I'm guessing many people did. And though it's not explicit in the text, I wonder if the reason why the number is so few is that many people did repent. In fact, in Numbers 25, there's another story of false worship. And there it's explicit in the text that only the leaders of the rebellion and those who did grievous sins that wouldn't repent die. I wonder if it's the same thing that happened here. Because, see, in God's people back then, they were blessed or judged by God together, corporately. And this cancer had infected their body and it had to be cut out. And that's why Moses can say in verse 29, today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of a son and of his brother, so he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. He's saying, you will receive a blessing because you were willing to do the hard work of cutting out the cancer to save the body. And that's hard. And that's weighty. We should feel the weight of sin. Now today, it's different. God's people are not a nation anymore, governed through, the, governed through laws and whatnot. We are those who trust in Jesus across all nations, all types of peoples. We're not one nation. So let me make this very, very clear. It is not okay for Christians to execute others because they don't believe in God. That's not our job. Jesus has changed some things. The weight of sin is still there. The wages of sin is still death. But today, the way it works is if there is unrepentant sin in the body, people are removed from membership. That's what the New Testament says is the way that we remove unrepentant sin. But the thing is, sin does deserve death. Every one of us experiences God's grace day by day. Because every breath we draw, if we have committed sin, which we all have, is God's grace to not bring judgment in that moment. But we've gotten so used to experiencing that grace that when he does bring judgment, we think something's wrong. Why is he bringing judgment? He never has before. But actually the thing that's, so to speak, been wrong before, but in our favor, is that he has held back. The judgment because he wants to forgive he wants to love and so Moses told in verse 30 goes to the people and says you've sinned a great sin I'm going to go to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for you and so he goes to the Lord and says this people have sinned a great sin but now if you will forgive their sin but if not please blot me out of your book that you've written God, if, if you can't forgive them, then take my life. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place at which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. That says, Moses, you're, you can't stand in the gap that way to fully cover it. I will eventually judge everyone who disobeys me. Their name will be removed from my book. It's the book of the names of those who are his. I'll I'll still go with you, but if I was to fully come, if I was to really visit the people because I'm holy and they're not, it will only mean judgment. And so in verse 35, we read that the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Yes, not the full judgment, but there are consequences to sin. And we sit here with the tension. How can God on one hand say, I will relent. I want to forgive. And then there's this incredible judgment. And they're side by side. And there's tension. And it's not solved in this story. And it's not solved in Exodus. And it's not solved in the Old Testament. Until Jesus and if you've been feeling that tension through this story, all of a sudden the words of Paul in Romans 3 become very, very good news. He says this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified, declared to be right, innocent, freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate God's righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. See, in Jesus, God gets to solve the tension. He says, I'm not going to sweep injustice under the rug. You want to know how much sin is wrong? Look at how I was willing to send my son and he willingly went and died on a cross to bear the cost of sin. I will not sweep injustice under the rug. It will be paid for. But because Jesus takes the penalty, God says, I can pay for the injustice and I can forgive. Because he can take your place. He can take all the justice so that I can give you all the forgiveness. No more mixture, no more tension, all the justice on Jesus, all the grace for us who believe. That's the good news of Jesus. That's what Jesus brings. See, Jesus is the husband who is cheated on by his bride who ends up running off, making a mess of her life, is in debt, and Jesus comes and says, I'll pay the cost to make you mine again, to fix this. Even though I didn't do anything wrong, and you did, I'll take the burden. That is sacrificial love. That is selfless love. Not just love for another person, as opposed to selfish love, but love for the other person who's also the enemy. The world has not known love like this, except in Jesus. That's the beauty of feeling the tension is when we see the depth of sin in the Old Testament and how there's not a full solution. All of a sudden, when we run, run into Jesus, we're like, wow, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. He's the one that fixes all of this. See, Moses couldn't fix it because he was imperfect. Imperfect. But Jesus being fully God is perfect, and he's fully man. So he stands in the gap, and Paul says later in Romans, who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He took the condemnation in his death. More than that, he was raised and is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. If you've trusted in Jesus, when you sin, and so to speak, would go up before God's throne, Jesus steps in the way, stretches out his hands and says, no, God. I I covered that I covered that so how do we respond well it's easy to look at the Israelites and think man they just can't get their act together and then all of a sudden if we check our own hearts we realize oh wait I struggle to trust oh wait I struggle to wait when I can't see what God's up to oh wait I'm often tempted to run to other things instead of waiting and trusting in God and they don't satisfy and they don't actually fix things. They just make it worse. And yet, he loves us. So isn't the answer clear? Run to Jesus. Don't stay in the camp worshiping false things. Run to Jesus who suffered outside the camp and say, I need you to save me. Help me remember. Because maybe you've already done that. Maybe you need to do that for the first time this morning. Trust in him. But all of us are so prone to forget. So I think this morning, God just wants us to say, just remember. Remember the depths of your sin. And remember the greater depths of grace I have for you in Jesus. Let's pray.